Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Starting Small Music Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McCormick, and today we have a very special guest with us. We have the go-to man for background vocals and country music, Wes Hightower. Wes has sang background vocals on over 160 number one songs in country music, and you're going to hear a story of how he got to Nashville and what made him want to become a background vocalist. You'll also hear stories from the road of his time being in George Strait's Ace in the Hole band and also singing background vocals on Florida Georgia Line's iconic song, Cruise. I had a great time talking to Wes. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you at the end. Just keep a smile on your face and it'll be okay. Try not to be bitter. You gotta do it either way. Keep a smile on your face and it'll be okay. So when life throws a jab, you gotta duck out of the way. Nick, how you doing today, Wes? Great. Thanks, Justin. So uh, getting right into your story, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? A small town called Weatherford, Texas, uh, just west of Fort Worth. Uh, Basically, I grew up singing in church, the local Church of Christ there in Weatherford, Texas, and learned how to read shape notes at a pretty early age. So I gravitated toward harmonies back then and uh, when I would listen to records as a young kid I I would literally pick out the harmonies and not worry too much about the lead vocals that was something I noticed early on I gravitated to harmonies as opposed to lead vocals real early did you find yourself listening to bands kind of like the Eagles or Beatles and stuff that were kind of known for harmonies as well I did Uh, and I didn't really ever sing along until probably the Eagles. And then uh, in 1979, I guess I was 14 in Boston. That first record came out on Boston. Mm-hmm. And those were the screaming highest harmonies I'd ever heard. And that actually got me fired up about singing, not just listening, because I never really thought of myself much as a singer. Sure. Until I realized I could catch some of those notes on that one record. Mm-hmm. thought, hey, I can do this. <laughs> do any other records or artists stand out from your childhood that you kind of give credit to getting you into music? Well, my parents listened to everything from the Statler Brothers to Waylon to Willie Nelson. Uh, Merle Haggard, you know, the standards, what we would call them. Not, not a lot of the old stuff. I think my dad was probably a Tex Ritter fan. Uh, but when he bought records, he tended to buy uh, big band records. Yeah. So we had a lot of Tommy Dorsey and Benny Goodman around the house when I was a kid. So I got to listen to those wild ass swing tunes. And uh, that kind of helped wire me for music as well. Uh, passing tones, things like that, that they use in the swing music in the day. That was it was wonderful to know, and I didn't really have any idea it would come up later, but uh, it really has helped a lot of times figuring out passing tones, getting through passages of harmonies. For sure. Now, taking it back to high school, were you playing in any local bands or anything like that, or were you just mostly playing in church at that time? Yeah, it was just church. When I got to college, I had a couple of buddies. I went to North Texas State for a while, and then my dad died uh, 
uh, early 84, probably not even a year after I went to North Texas State. Stayed one semester and then I moved home to be with mom. And it was easier drive to University of Texas at Arlington. I had some buddies that had a blues band. They were playing uh, actually back in Denton where I had gone to school. And their singer, his family moved, and they asked me if I'd come join them. And so we wound up doing just little tiny bars for no pay. They might give us beer or something like that. And we'd go do, you know, old buddy guy the, the standards for blues material. And I, would, I just want to quantify that uh, I never, ever learned how to dance uh, the blues. <laughs> now, what was but the, I uh, could sing them. Oh, sorry, keep going. Uh, but I could sing them. So uh, it, it did the job. For the small clubs we were in, it was going to be hard for me to, to learn how to dance to that stuff anyway. For sure. Now, what was the inspiration to move to Nashville, kind of coming out of college then? A friend that I had met in Arlington actually was a fiddle player. And at the time, he was playing for Gene Watson out of oh. Texas. Uh, he said, man, I'm moving there. And he had heard me sing a couple times. And he said, if you ever want to come visit, because, you know, you've got a really high voice. You can sing harmonies pretty well. And, uh, if you ever want to come visit sometime, I'll introduce you to some buddies. And uh, if you like it, well, I was tinting windows on cars uh, in some houses at the time. And long about six or seven months later, I just decided, heck, I can tint windows anywhere. It's worth a try. I'll buzz up to Nashville, meet some people, and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was wonderful. You know, the first few years I still had my a, a full-time job tinting windows there, but I would moonlight, hang out with some buds and made some lifelong friends in that process, just hanging out in studios, uh, getting to watch some of my idols, uh, like Curtis Young and Dennis Wilson, sing some background vocals on demos, and a couple of small time records that they would come do background vocals on in Hendersonville. That's where I live. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it furthered the bug just to see these guys doing what they do so well. And I could hear the same things they were doing and pick out notes. And I would, you know, a, a lot of times I was picking out, well, I think I might've sung this there yeah, and not that. Or, and I learned that, you know, I could hear alternate parts as well. And by the time I actually started working, I had already worked out how it was going to go in my head. And I think that made a huge difference because my first my first session went pretty quickly uh -huh. and got lots of compliments. And uh, it did not take long from there. I mean, by 93, I was working from, you know, 10 o'clock at night till five in the morning, going home, getting two hours of sleep and then going to my day job. And I did that for about two years before I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I quit the day job and started singing for a living, probably by 90, early 95. And two years after that, I sang on my first number one 
uh, Colin Ray. The song's called I Can Still Feel You. Uh-huh. And uh, that's, up to this point, I've been on 159 number ones. So. Wow. Now, when you first moved to town, was the goal to be the background singer? Did you already know you wanted to do that? Or were you trying to pursue like songwriting or an artist career of your own or anything like that? You know, I wanted to be a background singer. And that worked really, really well. Uh, So the songwriting thing sort of came out of my relationships that I made to songwriters, you know, singing on their demos and whatnot over the years. Mm -hmm. So I would come up with just crack ideas every now and then for a song. And when I was working with the songwriter, I would say, Hey man, you got a day where you're not writing with some important person or somebody that actually knows what they're doing, would you, you know, give me a ride around the block, show me what you know, and, Let's write a song. I'll bring the idea. You don't have to do anything but open up your toolbox and help me finish this song. Yeah. And, you know, I was I was amazed at how willing those guys were to write with the Yahoo because that's really what I was. <laughs> and I, I have found that songwriters, for the most part, are very, very engaging and accommodating in that way. Uh, if, if I had to say the biggest support that I ever got uh, in the music business, it would be from songwriters. They really, really helped me a lot. Now, I think this is fast forwarding a couple of years. In 1999, uh, you joined George Strait's Ace and the Whole Band. How does that opportunity come about? So another one of my idols in the business, his name's John Wesley Riles. He was singing background vocals on Judd's records, Brooks and Dunn records, uh, Alan Jackson records, you name it. I mean, he was all over. Uh, He actually had gotten the gig because another idol of mine, Curtis Young, everybody knows him as Mr. Harmony. who was singing on George Strait's records. In fact, I think all but the very first record, Curtis Young was the background singer on the record. So they asked him. Unfortunately, they called him about three weeks after he'd had back surgery and he couldn't ride in a bus. So he said, regrettably, I can't do it. He called John Wesley Riles and said, hey, I got this gig. John Wesley was like, hey, that's not a bad idea. So he took the gig. And I had lunch with him. He told me about the gig. I told him, I said, man, that is so awesome. Just so you know, if you ever get sick or whatnot, I need to sub. I already know the whole freaking catalog. So uh, that would, that would be the easiest sub gig I ever got. He goes, thanks. It's good to know. And it wasn't even two weeks after that, he found out his mom had gotten diagnosed, but I believe it was cancer and she was already aged. And he said, Wes, I'm the only guy that can actually handle the affairs. Should something happen to her, she'd gone into hospice. He goes, I can't do this gig. I don't feel right going out knowing that I'm probably going to have to bail in the middle of it and come home and square away in a state for who knows how long. He said, do you want the gig? And I just, that was the worst. It was the best and worst way to get the gig. But I said, absolutely, man. 
I'll do it for you. And it's your gig as soon as you want it. And, uh, you know, 23 years later, I've been in and out of this gig. He just decided after that he didn't want it. And uh, I've been doing it, you know, on and off ever since. Now, what was uh, George's relationship with the band at that time? Like, were you guys close on the road or any fun memories uh, from those early days or even back uh, with doing shows now? Well, when I first started in the band, I mean, the guy was 40, 40 years old. You know, I mean, he was, I guess you could consider that old for a country music artist nowadays. But back then, that was spring chicken. Yeah. Uh, we golfed a lot. We got to golf a lot on the road. He enjoyed that, still does, I'm sure. But, you know, it, he's 70 now, and I think he doesn't like to golf a lot on show days, which was kind of our thing, uh, because he gets tired quicker. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm guessing that's the reason. There could be other reasons, but I'm just guessing it's probably not good for him to wear himself out walking a golf course before he goes out and does a show. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we had a lot of great times in the beginning and uh, the relationship with his band has always been uh, as good as it could possibly be. I mean, we're talking everybody lives in a different city, a lot of which is in Texas, but they don't get to see each other unless they're either rehearsing or on stage. Yeah. He's got his own thing going on, whatever meet and greets he's doing, meetings he's having before the shows. We don't get to hang out before the shows. His, his schedule, once he's working, his schedule is pretty much taken 20 hours a day. No. But, you know, he's always cordial. It's always nice to catch up with him. Small talk, whatnot. Uh, you can get that with him anytime you want as a band member. But, uh, you know, it's not like we're going over to his house when we're in town or anything like that, but that's fun. Yeah. Now with close to 160 number ones uh, to your name, is it hard to remember like the sessions? Like, uh, can you still like remember like certain songs that you recorded or do they kind of all mesh together in the brain after a while? A little of both. I mean, I have, obviously I'll never forget my first one, the Colin Ray song. I'll never forget uh, three wooden crosses. Uh, I'll never forget, and all those, you know, Three Wooden Crosses was a number one, but another song of mine is probably my favorite female song I ever sung on was uh, Leanne Womack's called 20 Years and Two Husbands Ago. Mm -hmm. uh, that was, you know, arguably one of the greatest songs I could imagine have sing, sung on just because of the musicality of it. I mean, she sings her ever-loving butt off. And uh, I really enjoyed that song. I enjoyed singing on Troubadour with Vince. Uh, it's not every day you sing with Vince Gill and you get the high part. <laughs> but uh, that was an awesome experience. My wife actually got to be there for that as well. We were on date night and I got that call last minute. Uh, so I took her over to the studio and we saying that and it wasn't very much longer before it was a number one on George and I think that was an important one for him uh, because that's kind of his that song is so George straight you know you're not sure between that and Amarillo by morning which one's more George uh, 
all in all, the rest of them do kind of run together. Uh, not because I don't love the songs, but of the 160, you know, I would guess 550 to 700 top 40s. Yeah. And when you start talking those numbers, it just gets a little overwhelming. For sure. Uh, one that I thought was, so, um, one that I thought was cool is uh, how you sang background vocals on Florida Georgia Lions Cruise, kind of a song that uh, um, broke what country music was up until that point. Do you remember anything from that session, like thinking, like, man, this is going to change the genre, or like, uh, kind of just coming? Well, up I to said, country, like, I said exactly that. Uh, I said I've said this actually twice in my career. I said it once to John Rich. Uh, when he came out with the first Big and Rich record. I said, you changed the game. I said to Joey Moy when I sang on Cruise, I said, these guys are the next Alabama with a more modern flair. Yeah. And the, you know, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of folks that believe that sort of urban contemporary music but if you know the guys, especially know how they grew up, we're talking about guys that, that wore out the Whalen records the the same as they wore out the, the rap records. Yeah. So their influences were so diverse. This is what came out of that when they started writing songs. And they found a, a crew of guys that wrote those songs on that record. You know, four or five guys were kind of, consistently on that record i think joey's even on some of them but all of those guys had kind of the same upbringing and the same understanding of music and it just came naturally and uh, there's nobody can argue uh it's what our audience was looking for you know there are a lot of people that are going to complain about it but with the time that i've got i don't want to waste your time or draw this out but People, when I get into a conversation and they say, man, why can't there still be artists out there like Merle Haggard? And I said, well, I said, you're doing Merle more of a favor by just continuing to buy Merle records and continuing to listen to Merle instead of expect some kid who never picked cotton a day of his life to come up and be the next Merle Haggard. He can't write those songs. Young kids can't write those songs. They don't they they don't have the experience. That's not their upbringing. That's not their path. Uh, the reason Merle was as popular as he was and has lasted as long as he's lasted is because he really resonated with his his time and the people who grew up listening at the time. Yeah. And those people got older and understood how important that was. And they played it for their kids. And most of their kids understood how important it was, at least to their parents. And then those kids had kids that at least know who he is. They may not like the music, but I understand why. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, we're talking about a guy that literally wrote songs about picking cotton. <laughs> yeah. And, well, how do you, how can you relate nowadays to that? Uh, other than just appreciate the fact that it was relevant, it's timeless, and the songs really were great for that guy yeah. to be spilling his guts out 
writing those songs, and I think it's great. Uh, and I think country music is great now because they're doing the same thing. It's just musically it's changed. For sure. Now, when a producer brings you on for a record, uh, let's just even take uh, Morgan Wallen's latest record, for example, that you did some vocals on. Um, do you sit with the songs for a couple of weeks? Are you getting like ideas in your head or is it literally in the studio? They play you the chorus and then boom, you do your vocals right then. Yeah, that's I, I listen to it for the first time when I get there or when they send it to me, whatever the case may be. Uh, I listen down once, maybe twice. Uh, with certain artists, once you've worked for them a while, and I've been, you know, I've worked on not every Morgan Wallen song because he's got several that he does himself, and the guy can sing his sing circles around anybody. But the ones that I'm on, he's got he's got a uh, a dynamic to him that calls for a certain thing, uh -huh. and I love it. And so when I pull up a song is whether it's up tempo or mid tempo or even a ballad that there are cues he gives with his voice saying, I want, I want something here. And you don't even have, they don't have to send me a lyric. They don't have to send me notes. You just kind of know. Uh, and part of that's because they're writing songs in a certain, uh, with a certain formula to it, I guess you'd call but they're also writing songs that they know exactly where the dynamics are supposed to change. And they write those lyrics to do that in your mind. And they write the music to do it on the speakers and the background vocals are just easy. It's easy to say, Oh, okay. I see a scene change coming here. I think they want something and I'll just put background vocals there or an ooh part or some kind of droney ah part underneath it, whatever it calls for. It usually, it's usually pretty clear what it needs. For sure. Now I'd like to close my interviews by asking what's a piece of advice that you've learned along your journey? Uh, not only speaking to the people that want to come up and do background vocals, but I'm sure you've seen so many artists come in and out of town. What's something that you see that sticks out to the people that are successful versus the ones that give up? Uh, well, I think most people who move to Nashville have a drive for a particular reason and unfortunately for most of them it's to not be poor <laughs> yeah uh, and i i get the feeling that's the best drive the, the best trigger for drive that there is uh, I think somebody that knows they have to work their butt off every single day to just not be poor. I think that's important. I think it's hard for, I think it would be hard for a kid from a really wealthy family to come to Nashville and find the drive it takes to bust through all the walls that you have to go through in order to become not just assigned to act, because there's lots of those and it, it, out of a thousand signed acts in the music industry, 150 of them are actually artists. The rest are just singers that are either pretty or good looking. And they feel like they can market this person to a certain amount of people and make a certain amount of money. There are very few long, uh, long balls 
in the music business. And those guys and girls, I think, are the ones who come without options. This is going to work or I'm going to be poor. And when they go to bed and when they get up, there's a different kind of drive in those people. And I would highly recommend somebody going to Nashville. Uh, dig in, commit, and understand that there's, you know, I ate ramen noodles for two years in Nashville. And that was with the day job. But, you know, the day job I had really didn't pay that good. So I had I had no car payment and three hundred dollar a month rent and it was a struggle yeah you know, i certainly didn't eat out a lot so i think just not wanting to be poor helped me get up and do the work and work the long hours and hang out in the places after your bedtime because you know nashville is a 20-hour city i would highly recommend get out Go to where the music business is. Bluebird Cafe is kind of cliche, but I got to tell you, you go in there any given night, you're going to see a lot of people in the music industry there, whether they be artists or artist reps or producers or just songwriters looking for an act to go write with. You're going to find a lot of people there that you need to know. Uh, and outside of that, you know, immerse yourself in that culture, learn the music listen to everything that comes out of Nashville because you never know when you're going to get a conversation with somebody who will judge you based on what you know. Yeah. And the more, you know, the better you look, you know, those would be the, the keys to uh, being able to relate to people that are already in the music business who can then guide you in the right direction to do whatever it is you're there to do. If it's songwriting, that's going to be pretty straightforward. Meet songwriters, if they like you, they'll write with you. Uh, as far as background vocalists go, meet songwriters. If they like you, they'll hire you to sing on their demos. And ultimately, those songwriters, somebody's going to hire them to produce their record. And that's how it happened for me. And I, I think that could be how it happens now. Well, guys, there you have it. My conversation with Wes Hightower. Wes, thank you again so much for coming on the show. I had a great time talking with you. Everyone go follow him on Instagram at Westerhead. Check out Starting Small Music on YouTube to see all the video content from our interviews. And also, follow Starting Small Music on Instagram at Starting Small Music, and let us know who you'd like to hear on the podcast next. And remember, everyone starts small.